Introduction Welcome to Clock Jordan. This Abarta audio guide will introduce you to the history, legends and folklore that have made this such a special place for thousands of years. Located in the picturesque corner of northwest Tipperary, Clock Jordan is surrounded by lush green pastureland and damp peat bogs. The area has attracted settlers as far back as the remote prehistoric past. Archaeological excavations carried out close to the town at Ox Park, where the eco-village stands today, revealed evidence of Bronze Age activity. A number of mounds of heat-shattered stone and charcoal known as Fulactifia were discovered. At these sites, hot stones were used to boil water in shallow pits or woodline troughs. The water could have been for cooking, bathing, tanning leather, dyeing textiles or brewing beer. Nobody knows with any certainty. Because hot water can be used in many different ways, some archaeologists call these burnt mound sites the kitchen sinks of the Bronze Age. Perhaps more spectacularly, the beautiful gold collar of Ard Crony gives us further evidence of Bronze Age people in the area. This is one of the finest examples of a Bronze Age gold collar ever found in Ireland. It is thought to date to around 800 BC and is now on display in the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin. Clock Jordan became established as a town during the medieval period. The lands of the area were granted to the Demariscos, a powerful Anglo-Norman family who established a number of settlements in Ireland and Britain. The branch of the Demarisco family who settled in Clock Jordan consolidated their position by constructing a strong castle. The head of the family was believed to be a great crusader who had fought on a number of campaigns in the Holy Lands. It is said that when he returned to Clock Jordan after a long crusade, he brought with him a stone from the bed of the River Jordan. He used the stone from that sacred river as the foundation stone of his castle, giving this new settlement its name, Clock Jordan, the Stone of Jordan. Over time, this family of Norman adventurers became immersed in the Gaelic culture and even their family name changed from Demarisco to Morrissey or Morris. Life changed dramatically for Clock Jordan in the 17th century as it was a period of warfare and hardship across the country. Ireland became embroiled in the English civil wars and paid a severe price. Control of Ireland had begun to slip from England's grasp after the Catholic Confederacy Rebellion in 1641. James Butler, the Duke of Ormond, had initially led the Crown forces against the Confederacy uprising. But when King Charles I was defeated and executed by the parliamentarians in England, the Duke allied himself with the Confederacy at the head of a new royalist coalition in Ireland. 
Their aim was to invade England with a combined army of exiled royalists and Irish Confederacy troops to defeat the parliamentarian forces and to restore the monarchy. But the Royalist army was no match for Cromwell's seasoned veterans. In September 1649, they breached the walls of Drogheda and stormed the town, slaughtering the garrison and over 1,000 of the townspeople. He also stormed Wexford in a similar bloody attack. The ferocity of Cromwell's forces caused such terror that some towns and cities surrendered rather than face a siege and its consequences. But some other towns, including Waterford, Limerick and Galway, only surrendered after a brave resistance. The capture of Galway effectively ended any organised resistance to Cromwell and his army. By now, the country was devastated by war, famine and disease. Cromwell rewarded many of his officers and troops with confiscated Irish land. Almost 12,000 of his veterans were settled in Ireland, where they were expected to act as a militia in case of future rebellion. The lands across Clock Jordan were granted to John Harrison, a colonel in Cromwell's army. He incorporated the old Demarisco Castle into his new residence. Today, the fine structure he built is known as Clock Jordan House. After John Harrison's death, the house eventually passed to his granddaughter, who married into the Pretty family, who incorporated Clock Jordan House into their extensive Dunalley estate. The modest 1,500 acres that Colonel John Harrison was granted in 1654 had swelled to nearly 18,000 acres by 1870. Lord Dunalley controlled many aspects of the economy and lives of people living and working in Clock Jordan, right up until the middle of the 20th century, when the townspeople finally purchased the ground rents on the land on which their homes were built. Today, the town of Clock Jordan consists of one main street with a series of side streets branching off it. We will begin our tour at the southern end of the town, at the train station on the Templemore Road. Constructed in 1863, the train station and the arrival of the Great Southern and Western Railway linking Clock Jordan to the Dublin to Limerick branch line was the beginning of Clock Jordan becoming a major market town. The town became an important supplier of livestock to Dublin and the lucrative British markets. It also allowed many foreign imports to make their way to Clock Jordan, giving the townspeople access to the worldwide markets of the British Empire. Before the construction of the railway, goods were transported on the Royal Canal from Dublin to the River Shannon, to be brought to Loch Derg and then transported to Clock Jordan by horse and cart. This ponderous journey could take days, but with the arrival of the railway, the journey could now be completed in hours. Clock Jordan's farms and markets greatly benefited from this new and efficient transport. The train still stops at Clock Jordan Station as it has for 150 years. When you are ready, leave the train station and make your way back onto the Templemore Road 
and head towards Clock Jordan Town. As you walk along the Templemore Road, back towards Clock Jordan, you can enjoy some spectacular views. And if you look towards the mountains on the horizon, you can see the famous feature known as the Devil's Bit. There are a number of legends surrounding this distinctive V-shape that you can see in the mountain. One story tells us that when the devil was cast down from heaven, he was so angry he took a huge bite out of the mountain and carried the stone down to hell where he used it as his throne. The most famous legend links the devil's bit with the story of St. Patrick, Ireland's patron saint. The story says that the devil was enraged when he heard that St. Patrick was converting people to Christianity in the area and furious at the thought of losing souls for hell. He took an enormous bite out of the mountain and flung it at Patrick. Luckily for Patrick, he missed and the huge boulder became known as the Rock of Cashel, one of Ireland's most iconic sites. More folklore links the Devil's Bit to the legendary Irish warrior Finn McCool, who had the rock thrown at him during battle with a devil. However, unfortunately, both the outcrop that forms the Rock of Cashel and the distinctive notch in the mountains were caused by glacial events and not hungry devils. Continue along the Templemore Road, keeping to the right. As you approach the town, you can see an old building on your left-hand side. This is Windmill Cottage. It is thought that there was a windmill close by this cottage, but no traces of that remain today. Behind the cottage, you can see a housing estate known as Townsfield. Originally, this was once a large open field that played host to travelling circuses and fairs. These were great, colourful events that provided much entertainment for the people of Clock Jordan in an era before television and video games. Along this road, there were many former industries that no longer exist today. One of the main employers in the region was a sawmill that was established in 1909. The power to run the mill was sourced from a huge and powerful engine. The engine was effectively a large generator and from 1912 onwards it produced enough electricity to power all the town, making Clock Jordan the third rural town, after Carlow and Burr, to have electricity in Ireland. Meters were placed on houses and poles and wires were erected around the town. By 1948, when the Electricity Supply Board began the process of rural electrification, Clock Jordan had already had electricity for over 35 years. The visionary behind this was George Goodhand Patterson. He was originally from Dunmanway in County Cork and he arrived in Clock Jordan in the early 1900s with only £5 in his pocket. He lived in a house on the Templemore Road with his wife, three sons and a daughter. Tragically, his wife died in an accident in 1911. And although he later remarried, he had no further children. Goodhand Patterson had a reputation as a good and fair man with many local people employed in his mills. 
After his death in 1936, the sawmills changed hands. The ESB eventually bought the mills in 1947 and the site lay idle for a number of years before it was brought back by local men who continued to saw timber in the mill. Eventually, time and progress caught up with the mill and it was redeveloped into a medical centre. When you're ready, continue along Templemore Road until you come to the large church on the left-hand side of the road. Stop here. The Catholic Church of Saints Michael and John was constructed between 1898 and 1899 and features wonderful stained glass windows by the renowned artist Harry Clark. The Bishop of Killaloe commissioned Harry Clark in October 1923 to create a five-light masterpiece depicting the Ascension. By this time, Clark had become well-known and his work was in great demand. As a result, his work at Clock Jordan was not complete until 1925, but as you can see, it was well worth the wait. The scene that Harry Clark created depicts Jesus in a scarlet cloak ascending into heaven and also depicts St. Michael, the Archangel, and a number of Irish saints like St. Brendan, the Navigator, St. Bridget, St. Ita, St. Declan, and of course, St. Patrick. The window features a beautiful sky scene with floral motifs and evergreen trees. He also created two smaller windows on the side altars of the church, depicting the Child of Prague and the Sacred Heart. The windows are a wonderful testament to the genius and skill of Harry Clark. Though unfortunately Clark did not live long after completing the sublime windows at Clock Jordan, as he passed away in January 1931 and he was only 42 years old. The church has more beautiful examples of stained glass windows, though none are as stunning as Harry Clark's. However, a lovely double light window featuring Mary and Joseph was completed by Evie Hone. She was a contemporary of Harry Clark and studied in Paris under the Cubist painter André Lotte, giving her a very distinctive style. One of her most famous works can be seen in the Irish government buildings at Merrion Square, behind the staircase. The piece is called Four Green Fields and represents the four provinces of Ireland. She also gained widespread recognition for her work replacing the East Window at Eton College Chapel in Windsor, England. As you can see, Clock Jordan is blessed by having beautiful works from two of Ireland's most renowned stained glass artists. As you leave the church, look for the Boulogne Stone at the entrance. Boulogne stones are usually found in association with early medieval monastic sites and are thought to have been used as holy water and baptismal fonts. The stone was relocated here from the much older site of St. Kieran's at Modrini. When you're ready, leave the church and continue your way towards the centre of Clock Jordan, following the main street around to the left. Stop in front of the Methodist Church, which will be on your left, before the pharmacy. 
This single-roomed church was constructed in 1875. The Methodists had been living and working in Ireland from around the middle of the 18th century, but it remains one of the smaller religious communities in Ireland. In North Tipperary, one of the most significant establishments associated with the Methodist Church is Gertine College, which still runs internationally renowned courses in agricultural practice. The Methodist societies gained a reputation for their involvement in charitable works and care of the elderly. The church that we see here in Clock Jordan has many notable architectural features, including the interesting tile and brickwork that has been applied to the gable end of the church and the porch. This church was possibly constructed on the site of a late 18th century Methodist church. When you're ready, leave the market square and make your way towards Clock Jordan House. Walk back down the main street and turn left onto what is known locally as the Step Road. Walk along this road for about five minutes and Clock Jordan House will be on your left-hand side. Clock Jordan House is a fine example of a farmhouse with history dating back to the medieval period. The central portion of the structure dates to the 17th century, when Colonel John Harrison left Cromwell's army to set up home in Clock Jordan. He built his house up against the remains of a medieval tower house. The tower house was mentioned in the Civil Survey of Ireland that was taken shortly after the Cromwellian invasion of Ireland. The Civil Survey of 1654 to 1655 notes that in here in the townland of Oxpark are the ruins of an old castle and bawn. Tower houses usually date in Ireland to around the 15th to 16th century. The moat that surrounded this defensive site is still visible to the north of the house. The house still retains many of its original features from John Harrison's time in the 17th century and has a very rare example of a barley twist balustrade staircase. There is also a fine walled nursery garden. The documents that detail all the features of the garden in the 17th century still exists and is now housed in Dublin's Botanical Gardens archive. Today, Clock Jordan House is still a private family residence, but also incorporates a cookery school and is a venue for weddings. Guided tours of the house and gardens are available on request. More information can be found at clockjordanhouse.com. When you're ready, continue along the step road, walking away from Clock Jordan, and take the left turn into the Eco Village. This is Ireland's first eco-village and is an innovative scheme that aims to build over 100 houses and other facilities for those who wish to live in a house that is built in an environmentally friendly and sustainable manner. The builders and residents of the eco-village hold regular workshops and offer guided tours to inform others about how environmentally friendly building is achievable for everyone. Pass the allotments and eco-energy centre and follow the road around to the right. Then take a small path to your left and you will arrive at the remains of the Famine Fever Hospital.
Historical records indicate that in 1831, 16 years before the Great Famine, this hospital served a population of nearly 9,000 people and had 16 beds. The majority of the population had become dependent on the lumper potato. This was considered to be a superior variety of potato, as it grew easily in poor, damp soil and was highly nutritious. When combined with buttermilk, the lumper potato provided all the nutrients necessary to maintain good health, and people relied upon it for two meals a day, surviving on it all year round. However, the lumper potato was very susceptible to blight, and terrible outbreaks of blight plagued Ireland throughout the 1830s and more severely in the 1840s. It is recorded that after the Great Famine of the mid-1840s, the population of the Clock Jordan area had plummeted to 1,780, with only 644 people still living in the town. This is starkly illustrated in this excerpt from a local newspaper dated the 19th of January 1848, detailing the pitiful death from starvation of William Quirk. On Sunday, an inquest was held on the body in a filthy hut, which is situated on the roadside and within a mile of Clock Jordan. The interior of this awful abode of misery presented a most heart-rending spectacle. In a corner lay stretched on a litter of straw, in a state of nudity and utter helplessness, Timothy Quirk, aged 19 years, while his brother, Thomas, who was about nine years old, was lying on his back close to the fire which was composed a sod of turf and a few sticks which were given by the neighbours. The poor creature, whose skin was quite yellow, his limbs fleshless, and who was a wretched picture of extreme destitution, was unable to sit up or stand, such being the state of exhaustion he was in. On the floor stood trembling and in an emaciated state two other children, holding their unfortunate mother Bridget Quirk, by the remnant of an old gown and crying for food, which, alas, she had not to give them. And on a table was placed the body of the deceased, which was frightful to behold. Unfortunately, this harrowing account was not unusual in Clock Jordan at this time, and the parish was a place of suffering and hardship. The region also had mass emigration, as people had tried desperately to escape the grinding poverty, death and disease that stalked the country. Hope came to the people who managed to cling on throughout the famine in the form of the Land League. This organisation campaigned vigorously for tenants' rights and as things slowly began to improve, life began to become a little less hard and a little more prosperous for tenants. When you are ready, leave the eco-village by the pedestrian access. You will be walking on Church Street, which leads back onto the main street. When you arrive at the main street, turn right and walk up this street in the direction of Boris O'Kane. After walking for a couple of minutes, you will reach an old school building. This is where the famous Thomas McDonough's parents taught. Stop here. Joseph McDonough and his wife Mary Louise arrived in Clock Jordan in 1877 with their two daughters as the first teachers in the newly opened Catholic school in the town.
A year later, in 1878, they welcomed their son Thomas into the world. Thomas McDonough would go on to become Clock Jordan's most honoured native son. He was a loving father and husband, a teacher, a poet and one of the leaders of the 1916 Easter Rising, a martyr for Irish freedom. The McDonoughs were a very popular family in the area and the McDonough children grew up in a happy and loving home where the doors were always open and a warm welcome was always waiting inside. Thomas recounted his idyllic childhood in one of his poems. I found wise books but never such as could teach me a single word to set by what my childhood heard. The McDonoughs played with all the local children roaming around the fields and surrounding countryside. I wish I were today on the hill behind the wood, my eyes on the brown bog there and the Shannon River, behind the wood at home. However, this happy childhood was not to last forever and tragedy struck the family when Thomas was 16 years old. Thomas's father died suddenly, leaving his mother struggling to keep a roof over their heads and provide food and education for the family. The same year, Thomas was sent to Rockwell College to complete his education. During his time at Rockwell, he became deeply involved in the religious organisation, the Order of the Holy Ghost Congregation, and at one point strongly considered joining the clergy, but eventually realised he did not have the vocation for religious life. He left Rockwell and worked as a teacher in Kilkenny and Formoy, establishing the Association of Secondary Teachers with his great friend and fellow Clock Jordan native, Patrick Kennedy. This was a trade union formed to highlight and promote the rights of secondary school teachers. He was also heavily involved in the Gaelic League, which was founded to promote Gaelic cultural identity and promote the Irish language, before taking up a position as assistant headmaster at Skull Aina, a progressive school established by another prominent Irish nationalist, Porrick Pierce. During his time at Skull Aina, McDonough produced copious amounts of wonderful poetry, Perhaps his most famous work was John John. He moved in Irish literary circles, becoming friends with W.B. Yeats, Porta Cullum and George Russell, among others. He also spent some time in Paris and completed a master's degree in poetry and English literature. This led to his appointment as assistant lecturer in English at University College Dublin. Thomas married Muriel Gifford in 1912 and his family began to grow as they were blessed with a son, Dunna, and a daughter, Barbara. However, politics were never far from McDonough's mind and the desire for Irish nationalism was growing all the time. In 1913, when the Irish Volunteers were formed, Thomas McDonough was appointed a member of the Central Committee. He was involved in organising volunteers to receive a cache of illegal arms that were landed at Hoth from the yacht, the Asgard. After the outbreak of World War I, John Redmond, the leader of the Volunteers, urged the troops to fight on the British side to ensure that Britain would look favourably on Ireland and grant home rule for the country. 
McDonough was opposed to this and the Irish volunteers began to split. McDonough was also involved in organising the funeral of Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. He was a famous Irish nationalist and a significant member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. He had struggled his entire life for Irish freedom before he eventually passed away at the age of 83. At his funeral at Glasnevin Cemetery, 1915, Porrick Pierce delivered a powerful oration that became a rallying call for Irish nationalists. They think they have pacified Ireland. They think that they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think that they have foreseen everything, think that they have provided against everything, but the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead, and while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. Tensions were rising in Ireland, and Thomas Macdonough was at the centre of the growing movement of militant nationalism. The tension finally exploded at Easter in 1916. The Easter Rising of 1916 saw the Irish volunteers seize key positions in Dublin city centre to send a message of defiance to the British government. The Rising began on the 24th of April and Macdonough was in command of Jacob's Biscuit Factory in Bishop Street. He had a small unit of men, including his brother, who held the factory without having to engage with any full-scale enemy attack. The Rising failed and troops surrendered on Saturday the 26th of May, but Macdonough held out an extra day and surrendered on the Sunday. The leaders of the Rising were brought to Kilmainham Jail, imprisoned and sentenced to death by firing squad. At the time, public feeling in the city was against the Rising leaders, as many ordinary Dubliners felt that they had destroyed their city. However, as the executions began, public feeling began to change. Tragic stories surround each execution. McDonough's sister-in-law, Grace Gifford, married Joseph Mary Plunkett in Kilmainham Jail a few hours before he was executed. On the 3rd of May, Thomas was taken from his cell at Kilmainham Jail with Porrick Pierce and Thomas Clark and shot by firing squad. In the space of two days, 16 of the leaders of the Rising had been executed systematically. Thomas left behind his wife, his three-and-a-half-year-old son, and his one-year-old daughter. Thomas's widow, Muriel, went to live with his brother in Thurlis and began to publish more of Thomas's poetry. The following year, in 1917, she died tragically while swimming. Thomas's brother continued to be politically active and canvassed for the Sinn Féin party in the 1918 elections. He died on hunger strike in 1922 during the Civil War which was to plague Ireland in the early years of the 1920s. The Macdonough family connection with Clock Jordan is still very strong and proud today. Thomas's children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren have all maintained contact with the area and the people. Thomas's parents are buried in an old graveyard on the outskirts of the town. When you're ready, make your way back up the main street, towards the centre of Clock Jordan. Turn right down Church Street, towards the large, impressive spire on St. Kieran's Church. 
stop at the church. This Church of Ireland church was constructed in 1830 and consecrated in 1837 to accommodate the growing Church of Ireland congregation that lived in Clock Jordan and the surrounding parishes. The church was named after St. Kieran, who was known as the first saint of Ireland. He was said to have been born off the coast of West Cork in the 5th century. One of the best-known reverence of St. Kieran's at Clock Jordan was Frederick Fitzwilliam Trench. He was born in Shinrone and educated at Eton and Cambridge. He served as reverend at St. Kieran's for over 30 years and his charitable nature was well-renowned across Ireland. He spent much time in St. Kieran's home place of West Cork during the famine, tending to the sick and dying. Many Protestant proletising campaigns were being conducted across Ireland to feed the needy and to save souls by conversion. But Trench did not believe in the evangelical nature of that cause. He merely wanted to help the poor and vulnerable, and he regularly risked his life fearlessly visiting contagious fever-ridden hamlets in Ballydehob and Skull. Trench survived the famine and passed away at the age of 70 in 1869. Aspects of the past have been incorporated into the relatively modern church here. The dedication to St. Kieran came from the church at Modrini and was transferred to Clock Jordan Church when Modrini shut down in 1992. Stained glass windows from Modrini, Kilruan, and Tullow Church in County Clare have all been incorporated into the Clock Jordan Church, as all of these churches are now closed which indicates the huge decline in the Church of Ireland congregation in the modern era. The green area to the front of the church is known as the meadow. This was designed in the 18th century when the town was remodelled. When you're ready, leave St. Kieran's Church and turn to the houses opposite. These are known as the militia houses. Between 1780 and 1820, the first four houses were initially intended to be used as a barracks for the militia, but they were never used as such, being used instead as residential homes. The buildings are located on one side of the village green, which was originally supposed to serve as a parade ground, as in the early 19th century it was planned to turn Clock Jordan into a garrison town, but the idea was eventually abandoned. The idea of barracks towns was common across North Tipperary at the time and records show that in 1888 of the 51 towns across North Tipperary 21 of them possessed barracks. When you're ready make your way down Church Road which is also known as the Nina Road and enter the Gaelic Athletics Association or GAA ground via the pedestrian gate. The GAA, or Gaelic Athletics Association, was founded in 1884 in Hayes Hotel in Thurles, County Tipperary. 
It was established by Michael Cusack and Morris Davin, amongst others, as a means of restoring pride and national identity to the Irish people through the medium of traditional Irish sports like hurling, Gaelic football and handball. Clock Jordan has a long and rich tradition of the Gaelic games. A type of football known as cod was played in many local parishes around the area. An account of one of these games recorded in the 19th century recounts that if the ball went over a ditch, the players followed it and continued the game in the next field. The GAA began to grow quickly as Morris Davin was a well-known and respected athlete and helped to spread the movement across the country. Another factor which the GAA tapped into was staking parish against parish as clubs began to be set up at parishes across the country. Three All-Ireland medals were won by Clock Jordan men in the early years of the GAA. James Dwyer was on the Tipperary side that won the All-Ireland in 1887. Another local man, William Spain, was the first dual All-Ireland medal winner in the history of the GAA, winning a football medal for Limerick in 1887 and a hurling medal for Dublin in 1889. Clock Jordan also had a strong tradition of hurling and handball. Hurling was being played in every parish around Clock Jordan. Eventually, in 1900, a team was formed for the area and were given the name La Horna de Wets in memory of the famous South African General de Wets, who fought against the British in the Boer War. The La Horna de Wets were successful for a couple of years, but by 1909 and 1910, they stopped playing. They entered one last championship in 1911 with Tumi Vara in opposition. Tumi Vara won the game by four goals. It marked the end of the duets, but the beginning of Tumi Vara's reign. 1918 was a historic year for Clock Jordan, as the name McDonough was used for the team name after the famous patriot who had been executed two years previously. Their colours were green, white and gold and they remained the team colours until 1959 or 1960. The colours were changed to black and white jerseys and are now the official jersey. The Civil War caused a lot of suffering in the area and the GAA was one of the main organisations that suffered as many members were imprisoned and roads were blocked around the region making it difficult to participate in games. The GAA tradition is still very strong in this area and the club continues to be well supported. When you are ready, leave the GAA grounds, turn right and continue walking away from Clock Jordan along the Nina Road on the path on the left-hand side. Stop at the bridge. Pause for a moment to take in the lovely views over the Ballyfinboy River. This is where the infamous O'Sullivan Bear marched through the area in the 17th century. Donal O'Sullivan Bear was the first Count of Bearhaven in Cork and the last independent ruler of the O'Sullivan Bear clan. He held power during the late 16th and early 17th century when English forces were beginning to dominate the political establishment in Ireland. Donald's father was killed in 1563 
and his father's brother assumed control of the area. In order to remain in power in the area, Owen accepted a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth I, who demanded complete loyalty from subjects in Ireland. Donal was not happy with this arrangement and petitioned the courts in Dublin to be granted his father's land and titles. As the inheritance of absolute male primogenitor was the system used by the English Crown to resolve inheritance issues. Dublin accepted Donald's claim and he now became the O'Sullivan Bear. Elizabeth's plantations began in earnest in the latter half of the 16th century and caused much resentment and ill-feeling. This led to the Nine Years' War, which culminated in the Battle of Kinsale. Spanish forces came to the aid of the Gaelic-Irish chieftains in the hope of defeating English rule in Ireland and weakening their power. However, the battle was a complete disaster for the Gaelic and Spanish alliance and many of the Gaelic chieftains, including the O'Sullivan Bear, fled Ireland to the continent to try to seek support for their cause in an episode known today as the Flight of the Earls. In 1618, the O'Sullivan Bear was murdered as he was leaving Mass in Madrid. His murderer was a young Englishman who had been disfigured in a duel with O'Sullivan's nephew. However, it is thought by some that the killer was a paid assassin, though we will never know the truth. Some of the family remained on the continent, and around 165 years later, one of his descendants served as a general fighting in the American Revolution. When you're ready, make your way back towards the main street. Make your way towards the centre of Clock Jordan, known as the Market Square. Fairs have been held in the town of Clock Jordan officially since 1837. Cattle and sheep were traded and sold traditionally on the 12th of every month, except in the month of September. On specific days in September, pigs could be traded, and in February, horses were traded. Everything locally produced was sold in Clock Jordan, and with the arrival of the train in the late 1800s, local farmers now had a much bigger market to trade with. It is thought that Clock Jordan could never have developed to become the successful market town it became without the arrival of the railway. The fortunes of the market town have waxed and waned, however, with the arrival of the motor car. The importance of the train decreased and with the centralisation of cattle marts to bigger towns like Nina, the local fair at Clock Jordan became less important. However, there has been a revival and there is now a twice-monthly street market which harks back to the olden days of the bustling fair. The street markets are held on the first and third Sunday of the month and offer fresh, locally sourced homemade produce, remaining true to the old-style fair that once graced the market square of Clock Jordan. And it is a wonderful place to while away a couple of hours, as there are lots of coffee shops and pubs which afford you the opportunity to rest and take in the wonderful atmosphere that surrounds you. 
conclusion. So now we have come to the end of our tour of the wonderful heritage town of Clock Jordan. Feel free to spend time wandering around the town, getting deeper insights into the sights, sounds and heritage of this picturesque area. If you wish to learn more about Clock Jordan's most famous son, Thomas McDonough, pay a visit to the new Thomas McDonough Heritage Museum. We hope you've enjoyed this audio guide. Good night, on Boherlath. May the road rise to meet you.